Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You know, Elisa, we are also awaiting uh, President Trump. He's going to be talking about uh, the health care uh, reform that he has been trying to initiate and maybe trying to do it by executive order rather than by floating a specific plan that uh, would have to pass the Congress. This would, in a sense, dilute the options, uh, even though they say they're going to offer more options. It's going to maybe dilute them because it'll be more expensive for people. Well, here's the here's the challenge. So basically, what President Trump, from my understanding, wants to do is to allow uh, insurance companies to offer a wider array of plans to potential uh, customers. In other words, you could just get certain protection that would cover uh, primary care visits or and catastrophic, uh, you know, insurance. The concern here is that this will essentially uh, uh, make it more expensive for people who have pre-existing conditions and right. who need to get more comprehensive plans, thus basically pricing them out of the market right. it and, follows, and undermining it. Yeah, it, right. it follows the letter of the law, which says that you can't deny coverage for existing conditions, pre-existing conditions rather, but that the cost would be so exorbitant that it wouldn't really make any sense for people to be able to access this because they wouldn't be able to pay for it. And the treatments in many cases, as we've noted with, you know, orphan drugs for so on, are so expensive that you'd go broke just paying for the in, for the uh, for the insurance plan. Right. Because the cost of the medication or the treatment is so high. Yeah, I mean, it's sort of interesting to see the reaction as we get all of the new details out of President Trump's expected plans uh, come out. The reactions in healthcare shares, right? Because uh, you see them bouncing around and and responding to the volatility. President Trump has also uh, thrown out the idea of withholding funds from uh, the program, which they have to renew. The subsidies, right? The subsidies, this- right? That's right. And so uh, this is something to, to it's it, it affects a pretty wide variety of companies. I'm just speaking from a market's view and looking right now at Aetna. Uh, its shares are down today, uh, along with others, uh, nearly 1%, and they've been generally declining over the past few weeks. So uh, it's interesting just to note that this could end up being a negative uh, for them, or at least viewed that way, uh, by uh, by, investors. by investors. Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, also Molina, WellCare, Centene, as well as Anthem. I mean, these are insurers that all participate in the Affordable Care Act exchanges. And uh, if the uh, executive order uh, goes to the point where it makes those plans uh, not competitive in the marketplace because companies are forced to buy them, uh, then you're going to end up with a very fragmented market that uh, is going to be very difficult for consumers to untangle. You know, I'm, I'm struggling with the idea that Congress tried to pass some kind of health care law twice, at least twice, right? And they couldn't come up with uh, something that could get enough votes. And here we have the president acting unilaterally. And I wonder what this does to congressional negotiations uh, going forward, given the fact that um, he's changing the backdrop quite a bit. And and he is making, uh, some people would say, uh, ACA less viable. I want to bring in Max Neeson, biotech pharma and healthcare columnist for Bloomberg Gadfly. He joins us here in our 11.30 studios. Uh, 
Max, you know, you wrote a fantastic column basically saying that President Trump is kneecapping uh, the ACA, otherwise known as Obamacare. What's the path forward and how can uh, ACA be resurrected? Is there political will to uh, give it a little bit more oomph after this? So there are sort of two components to this. There's what the administration is already doing, uh, which includes cutting funds to, to market the ACA and for groups that help people sign up for insurance, as well as shortening the, the period people have to enroll. And then there's what is happening today, which is the signing of an executive order um, that seeks to kind of make it easier to offer insurance and sort of skirts around uh, some of the ACA's regulations. And, and what this does is it basically all kind of conspires to, to dampen enrollment in the ACA and, and leave the pool that's left there as um, people that tend to be sicker and, and higher costs, which raises premiums, which means more fewer people sign up. So it's kind of a, a really unfortunate cycle that, that's difficult to derail. And I'm not sure if there's political will to, to do otherwise, because, you know, the president has made his priorities known, which is uh, effectively weakening this market. So, um it would take action that, that sort of contradicts him, and, and I'm not sure that, that Congress is quite up for that. What Does it also contradict the very notion of what insurance is, that you want a large pool of people to pay into a group plan in order to diversify the risk so that when one person needs the funds, in this case for health care, they exist while other people continue to pay because they don't want to get sick, but they might. Yeah, so that that was kind of the the central logic of the ACA, which was to take you know a large and, and fragmented individual market and uh, create a larger risk pool out of it by subsidizing people, making people that couldn't previously afford it be able to afford it, and making it accessible to a large group of people, and then adding the uh, the penalty if you didn't sign up to encourage people to sign up. Because so, the insurance industry doesn't necessarily care where the money comes from. Exactly. In other words, they don't care who pays the premium as long as the premium gets paid and it's matched to the actual liability. Yeah, so the thing that's damaging about this order is that it... it Instead of making the uh, the risk pool larger, it, it divides it by basically making it easier to purchase uh, cheap short-term insurance and for uh, little groups of employers to band together and offer uh, less generous and cheaper coverage. So that'll basically uh, potentially siphon off people from the individual market, uh, making the risk pool worse there. Do you think that if uh, President Trump goes through with pairing back uh, both the subsidies as well as the requirements for insurance companies, that that will actually remove the pressure on Congress to do something substantial with the ACA since they just have to, uh, since it's already been watered down and there'll be less money flowing toward it? Um, so there there might be pressure on two sides. One, uh, the pressure to do something to sort of counter this to try and make the market a little more stable. Um, or if um, the, the aim might be through these kind of actions uh, to deliberately destabilize it as a way to, to galvanize another repeal-replace effort. Although that, that would obviously be complicated by the need to pass tax reform. So, so it's unclear if they'd be able to do that. Is there any, in your mind, can there be then any explanation for why we haven't seen a huge reaction in the stocks? I mean, Anthem, Aetna, United Health, Cigna. I mean, you know, okay, uh, over the last month, uh, Aetna's down 4%, but Anthem's up four-tenths of a percent. Today, Anthem is higher. I mean, there's no real uh, consensus here, is there? Um, I, I think if you look at some of the smaller insurers that are a little bit more narrowly focused on the ACA, you'll see a, a little bit more of a like reaction. Centene, C and, Centene Molina. and Molina, WellCare. Um, 
Because everyone except Anthem has taken, and even Anthem has taken a pretty big step back in the market. And the other thing is, is it might be that this this order is a little bit less severe than than some were expecting over the last week and previously. Uh, it kind of limits the expansion of what are called association health plans to employers rather than seeking to add individuals to it. That was something that that people feared might happen. So so it's still bad, but not as bad. And and there's no kind of specific. Uh, effort to make insurance, uh, be, be able to sell insurance across state lines, which was also a potential policy remedy. Are there any estimates on what President Trump's expected action uh, in a few moments uh, will do with respect to the number of uninsured in the U.S.? Um, you know, there there isn't a specific estimate on, on this exact proposal, but pretty recently the CBO, uh, the Congressional Budget Office, did substantially revise downward its estimates of, of how many people would be on the individual exchanges, um, in part due to the fact that, you know, they just haven't performed as well as expected for a variety of reasons, but in part because of, um, you know, other actions taken by the president, like uh, not committing to funding cost-sharing reduction subsidies. What will this do to actual doctors, healthcare centers? I mean, does it actually have an effect on the healthcare networks that have been set up in different communities? Uh, it absolutely does. I mean, any, any increase in the number of uninsured people exposes and exposes hospitals to more uncompensated care. Um, and when people have, you know, if they sign up for these skimpy short-term plans, uh, they're likely to defer healthcare that they might have otherwise consumed if they had a comprehensive plan. And then there's the fact that, you know, in, insurance is in place, um, you know, comprehensive insurance is desirable because you don't know when you're going to need health care. I mean, that that's why one of the goals of the ACA was to promote, um, you know, care insurance that actually served its role as opposed to uh, being like so narrow or or having so much cost sharing for the the patient that you know actually getting sick in a real way was financially toxic, so you might see some of the return of that. You know, Max, one of the things that strikes me as ironic is that you have Medicare and Medicaid, although Medicaid typically administered by the states in a variety of places, but Medicare national plan, right? And then you have the situation where you cannot sell health insurance plans across state lines. It's almost as if we're sort of, you know, trying to do something with one hand tied behind your back. Is that accurate? Um, a little bit. I, it is tough to have an, an, you know, unless you're the size of Medicare and, you know, it's a program that's been around for many years. It, it's sort of tough to have um, insurance that extends across multiple places because you have to design a plan and a provider network. Um, and account for state regulations. But, you know, the privately run Medicare Advantage programs uh, do kind of tend to be concentrated within states. So, so there's a little bit of a, a split in that market as well. Do you have any sense of who's advising President Trump and drafting uh, what he's doing today? Um, I mean, this this particular piece of this particular executive order has uh, Rand Paul's fingerprints all over it. Uh, it kind of sh- has some uh, some proposals that, that he's kind of been in favor of for a long time, although not all of them, but, but I'm sure uh, he's still thrilled at the result today. Hospital corporations, uh, what, uh, what pain are they going to feel if indeed this happens? You know, it's a it's a segment. Hospitals are already struggling uh, with kind of reimbursement issues and uh, generally like a kind of over consolidation and, and a lot of debt. So um, any anything at the margin that reduces 
their flow of business uh, as you know a rise in the uninsured rate um, and and uncompensated care could is definitely a bad thing. Because I was looking at Tenet Healthcare, for example, and the stock is down five and a half percent this year, and shares are you know down again today, and that's got to be a difficult business, right? I mean, they're down more than three and a half percent. So hospitals seem to be bearing the brunt of this. Uh, absolutely, um, and, you know, especially something like Tenet that that has a really substantial debt load, and um, you know, it's trying to dispose chunks of the business to to pay it down, um, and anything that that looks negative will obviously be reacted to. Well, but Max, will this make it cheaper for the U.S. with respect to their uh, health care bills? Um, for a subset of people, you know, if you're healthy and young and only want really limited insurance, you might have a better option now. Uh, that just has various knock-on effects. And if you become not healthy, then, uh, you know, that's the position we were in before the ASA. You're potentially in a lot of trouble. I actually was talking about the federal government because oh. I know that that was one thing that people were talking about was that reducing the ACA would actually free up all this money and it could kind of bridge uh, any budget deficits that would arise from the tax plan. You know, the, the truly ironic thing here is that there's a really good chance that this will increase federal expenditures. Um, it, it sounds kind of um, contradictory. You think of the ACA as a big government program, that pairing it back might uh, reduce federal spending. But because you're taking all these actions that are likely to send uh, insurance premiums up, um, for, the sub for about the 85% of the individual market that gets subsidies, uh, they'll still want this insurance. They don't pay for a whole lot of it. The subsidies are tied to their insure their uh, their income levels and tied to premiums. So when premiums go up, those subsidies go up, and and those premiums are set to go up a lot because of these actions. So so uh, in addition to kind of disrupting the market, this might actually turn out to be very expensive for the government. Max Neeson, our Gadfly columnist, expert when it comes to biotechnology, pharmaceuticals, and healthcare. And uh, Max, I I'm sorry to keep harping on the hospitals because this is kind of you know the point of care, right? And I've just been looking at the stocks and Tenet is down 18.5% this uh, over the last month. I beg your pardon, over the last month. Community health down 19% over the, uh, the last month. HCA, LifePoint, all the uh, universal health. If, if the investing public is saying, we don't want to own a hospital, uh, What's that going to do to the infrastructure of those institutions that are going to be the ones to actually administer the care? Where are they going to get the money? Are they going to have to go out and borrow more money? Yeah, so um, uh, a kind of rough equity environment for, for hospitals does make it a lot tougher. Um, and uh, when you have these sort of big consolidated groups, um, you know, they're they're kind of struggling in this market. And... Um, you know, it's unclear whether that model is going to end up being sustainable. Um, so, yeah, really, really not sure how this is going to impact. Because the, the whole of point of consolidation for the hospital industry was that it was supposed to lower costs and improve patient care. Have they done away with the same kind of state by state regulations that would limit, for example, the sharing of information between hospital groups? Or is that still part of, you know, the privacy laws? So, yeah, that, that was sort of the promised impact of these big con consolidation moves. But but obviously, uh it hasn't quite come to fruition as uh, as the investor, the iBanks might have pitched when they were making these deals, uh, because you know the the amount of debt that they raised has not kind of been 
uh, it's been out of proportion with the the sort of synergies and and anything they've realized by actually doing these transactions. Max Neeson, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, always a pleasure to get your insights, and uh, always uh, his columns are full of uh, insights, so I recommend people read it, Bloomberg.com slash Gadfly. Max Neeson is a Bloomberg Gadfly columnist focusing on the healthcare uh, and, and biopharmaceutical companies and everything else related to that field. All right, let's uh, turn our attention now to the world of banking and finance. I want to bring in Frank Sorrentino. He is the chairman and the chief executive of Connect One Bank, assets under management $4.7 billion, based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And uh, you can follow uh, Frank online on Twitter at Frank and just uh, Roman numeral three. Frank, always good to have you uh, here. Uh, you know, maybe you could just start off by uh, one of the things I know is slightly in the weeds, but. When I think of a bank, I don't necessarily think of changes in the transportation industry. But I've got to think about that when I think of Connect One because you specialized in taxi medallions and fi- helping to finance taxi, taxi medallions. The business has got to really have changed in the last five years. I'm wondering if you could just tell us your relationship, how that's changed, and then how do you meet a change like that? Because it's not as if people still don't want to travel by automobile. Pim, great to be here again. Uh, thank you so much. And and yes, of course, you know, there's lots of change in the world today. And transportation is one of those areas that have changed dramatically. We we don't think about transportation in the same way that we did even three years ago, never mind five or 10 years ago. Um, and here at Connect One Bank, while that's a very, very small piece of what we do, uh, we've seen and we continue to see changes in all aspects of the businesses that we're involved in, whether it's in the transportation space, whether it's in the retail space. There's tremendous change going on there. Uh, habitation, office space. Right. It's but I all, want to, it's but come all on. T- Tell me about ta- – you used to – I mean, I remember because you put them on the balance sheet. They yeah. were listed as held for sale. Now, just mm-hmm. explain what it is you, you used to spe- – you specialize in this. Well, we never. It was never a specialty. Uh, well, it's a very, every. very small piece of our balance sheet, Pim. We are we're, we're near a five billion dollar institution, and this is this is one uh, percent of our entire balance sheet. So I wouldn't call it a specialty, but um, we certainly liked the transportation space in New York, and that's you know that's what the taxi industry is about, and taxi and the ownership of Taxi Medallion, um, and that has definitely changed dramatically, and our view of how that transportation is going to take place in New York City has changed dramatically over time. Uh, Frank, I, I want to broaden out a little bit into the relationship of community banks with the uh, incredible upsurge in financial technology. And I'm wondering, from your firm's perspective, how have you upgraded your systems and kind of uh, adopted some more modern technology to both streamline uh, your employees as well as cater to potentially a younger well, just as client a, base? As a jumping off from you know what's gone on in the transportation That's space, right. uh, it's the same thing here at uh, Connect One Bank and many other financial institutions. You know, people when we used to think about a bank, you say the word bank. There's a segment of the population today that thinks about a limestone building with, you know, with, with leather couches and stone floors. Uh, but today when we say bank and, you know, there's another segment of the population who thinks about their mobile device and thinks about ones and zeros and thinks about an electronic media as opposed to, you know, cash that you get out of the vault at the bank. 
And Connect One has always been a technological leader relative to employing different ways of bringing banking services to our clients and being able to leverage technology, innovative technology, to, to create a well, better experience but, for our client. But how? Because a lot of the big banks have been uh, spending an increasing amount of money, hundreds of billions of dollars on their uh, technological infrastructure. Uh, given the size of your bank, how do you uh, have a competitive advantage or edge or even keep up? So as you know, recently we just announced a partnership with Zelle, which is a consortium of a number of uh, large financial institutions in the payment space. And this will be a product that will compete against Venmo and other types of payments. It'll have the security that banks are known for. And so we believe this is going to be a very popular product as, as time moves on. We also announced a pretty substantial partnership with Encino, which is a deposit and loan origination platform, which brings us technology that rivals the largest institutions and will allow us to be much more efficient in how we manage our client relationships. Uh, and so there are partners out there. We don't have to have that IT department and create you know, the technological innovation. There are partners that we will get together with in the future, and these are two examples where we can bring the same level of client service as our largest uh, institution colleagues. What's your thoughts on Bitcoin? Do you agree with Jamie Dimon? Or uh, I, I think I'm more in the Jamie Dimon camp than, than not. Um, I, I am a big fan of the blockchain technology. I don't know that the Federal Reserve is prepared to let go of our currency as we sit here today. Uh, and, I, and I believe that's what Bitcoin represents, right? It represents an alternate currency. Um, we can just imagine what that will mean and how it's going to be used. But uh, I, and I don't think the, I think the Federal Reserve is allowing the sandbox to occur for right now. But at some point, they're going to take control or maintain control of our currency. Well, actually, just to sort of update or uh, give a little more nuance to Jamie Dimon's statements, J.P. Morgan's uh, Mariana Lake came out today and said that J.P. Morgan is, quote, very open-minded to possible uses for cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin if they, quote, are properly controlled and regulated. Uh, based on, Frank, what you just said, you think that proper control and regulation will ultimately kill these cryptocurrencies? I, I, I think... In the format that we look at them today, yeah, that would be a true statement. <clears throat> Excuse me. I think that over time, though, the technologies that, that, that are behind Bitcoin and other types of currencies may be things we will see in our own currency system. So uh, you mean as far as blockchain goes? Yeah, yeah. Well, but what's the advantage of blockchain versus, say, just an automatic computer system held by JP Morgan, which is basically just, you know, a spreadsheet basically of accounts. I mean, why is blockchain better? I, I wouldn't sit here and, and profess to be a, an expert in blockchain. However, the technology there is certainly more ubiquitous and it is not controlled by any single source. Um, and it can be rel relied upon in ways that current technology cannot. And I think that's what the attractiveness is there. And I think there are many institutions that are looking to utilize blockchain in lots of places, whether it be in currency as Bitcoin, but also in the real estate area, in title, um, you know, in ownership chains. There are just lots of places where that type of technology will replace many archaic systems. And, you know, again, I know we started the conversation there, disrupt industries that exist today in a big way.
If there was uh, one rule that you could change having to do with the banking industry, uh, what would it be? Oh, boy. Um, Tim, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I, I, I like to look at all regulation in the industry and think about why it came to be and think about the iterative change over time that has created a better, safer system today. I don't really think I have a favorite or maybe that's not the right word to use, but I, I, I can't even I can't even begin to think. There are so many places where I do believe change needs to occur. Um, some places more subtle than others. And and I think we're actually starting to see that occur, right? We're seeing some very different tonal change at the top of the regulatory structures. Uh, and I think it's becoming a better environment for banks in general. Frank, I'd love to get your take just on the banking business itself, the idea of lending money out, the idea of having deposits. Um, what's your uh, outlook for community banking? And from your own perspective, where do you see the biggest opportunity uh, for your firm? So I think there's still great opportunity in the marketplace for community banks like Connect One Bank. And you know what we start, what we are seeing, and have seen over the last number of years. There's been a lot of consolidation going on for a lot of the smaller players, and I think what we're going to get to is our much larger small banks. And Connect One is one of those types of institutions where we're getting larger, but we're still a small bank in a, in a community such as the New York Metro Market, which represents some 10% of our GDP. So I think there'll be a place for banks like Connect One. Um, I think the opportunities are going to be tremendous. I think people still want that, you know, personalized client service that they just can't get at some of the large. Is that the pitch that yeah. we have more hands-on kind of approach? Yeah, I think you can get to the decision. Look, if you have a um, cookie cutter need, uh, there's plenty, and there will be plenty of opportunity for people to be able to do that online without ever talking to an individual. But if you're an entrepreneur and you're going to start a business and you're going to need some advice and you're going to need help in ha trying to figure your way through the system, and I believe that will always be the case, then you're going to need a place like Connect One Bank to come to to speak to a banker. Well, you're going to be speaking, I believe, on Sunday on a panel at the uh, 2017 Annual Convention of the American Bankers Association. The theme you described this year is called Rapid Change. Uh, is uh, is there any um, is there any sort of detail that you can share in terms of what has been the biggest stumbling block to change for for the banks? Is it just is it management decision making? Is it cost? What, Pim? I think you know our industry and 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 you started right you know they're talking about disruption in the transportation space. It's the same thing in banking. There's a lot of disruption that's going on in the banking space, and there are other players out there who are coming to market with with products and services that are, seem to be more streamlined, you know, take away a lot of the friction that's in the system. And I think as banks and bankers, community bankers, we need to recognize that we need to get that friction out of the system as well. And we need to develop, we need to develop and deliver a product that, you know, can compete with our fintech brethren um, and partner with those people in order to come up with the change that the, that the economy is requiring. You know, the speed of change today is just extraordinary. Frank, real quick, uh, how much do you think that you can uh, grow your assets in the next couple of years? <laughs> um, so I can't give forward-looking statement there, but we've been growing in the mid to high teens for the last, I don't know, how many years. 
and you know consistent with the marketplace that we're in today and consistent with the market share grab that we're able to get from the larger institutions uh, I don't really see anything standing in our way. Thank you so much for joining us, Frank Sorrentino, Chairman and Chief Executive Officer of Connect One Bank, which has nearly $5 billion uh, under management and is based in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. He's on Twitter at Frank S-I-I-I and uh, talking about the connection between community banks and fintech. Definitely an increasing trend where firms are partnering with existing platforms to get uh, state-of-the-art technology. I'm Lisa Abramowitz with Pim Fox. This is Bloomberg. So what to do when machines do everything, how to get ahead in a world of artificial intelligence, algorithms, bots, and big data? Well, perhaps the first thing you do is you call Ben Pring. He is the co-director of the Future of Work Center for Cognizant. They're based in Boston, home to Bloomberg 1061, Boston, Newburyport, 1330 Metro West and the South Shore. And he is the co-author of the book, What to Do When Machines Do Everything. Well, Ben, thank you for being here in our studios. What do you do? Other than, I, I imagine, first of all, you read the book. That's right. That's the right answer. Yeah, yeah see? All right. I got a machine might not have been able to give you that answer. But... End of the interview. That's enough said. Yeah. Huh? Well, so, but seriously, what, what uh, first of all, can you just describe what attitude should you have when you're trying to learn about the challenges of automation and artificial intelligence? Should you have one of fear, defensiveness, optimism? What what should you hold? I think, yeah, it's a great question. And it's really the central question of the book. And what we're trying to argue is that rather than worrying about sort of uh, the ethical implications of robots in 50 years time, the issue most business people have to focus on is what do you do about it now? What do you do about it in the next few months, the next few quarters? Because these technologies, which are incredibly powerful and developing incredibly fast, are going to change all aspects of society, all aspects of business. So we're trying to offer advice in the book to people about how to you know, make the trend your friend, not worry about too, the, the, the far-off future, worry about what you, get, you can do today. And, and the first sort of fundamental building block of that is accepting, as you say, Pim, that this is real and you can use these technologies today. You can adopt them in your financial services practice. You can adopt them in your healthcare practice. You can adopt them in the way you schedule meetings. Uh, and all of these little kind of incremental things are going to have profound implications in the next few years. So can you point to a specific industry that is currently undergoing a transformation on the heels of increased use of artificial intelligence and computers uh, that serves as a poster child for what happens, who loses jobs, who gains? Can you give us an example? Yeah, I think the financial services sector is probably the most uh, obvious one where this is happening very, very quickly. You know, eight out of the top 10 hedge funds are now basically algo-traded. Um, you see what's happening in the big uh, the, the big banks who are replacing traders with with people who can write code. Um, you hear what people are saying about the back office in big banks, how that's going to be sort of fundamentally rewired using automation software in the next few years. So, yeah, I think you can look uh, to New York. You can look to th this town, Wall Street. 
to is for an industry that's really taking this seriously. They've seen the disruption in other industries, in media, in in um, in uh, um, entertainment by software as that comes in and eats that industry, and they don't want to let that happen to them. So one of the claims in your book was that an increased use of technology doesn't necessarily lead to fewer jobs, and yet certainly what we've seen with financial services, the poster child right now is a loss of jobs. Fewer people are needed. This is all wrapped up in the cost cutting that we're seeing at the big banks. So can you square those two ideas? Yeah, again, that's what we try and get in, into in real detail in the book. And our, our conclusion is that these sort of uh, predictions about a jobless future, about 50% of jobs going away in the next few years, they're, they're pretty wide of the mark. They're not really, they don't really stand up when you drill into them. The reality is that the churn is going to happen in the next few years. The work that you do today is not the work you're going to do in the future, but to imagine that all the jobs are going to go away, that's unrealistic. And we spend a lot of time in our book, and again, one of the central messages of the book is that there's so much innovation going on around technology, I mean, around the blockchain revolution, that it's going to create new work for people to do. It's not going to be the work people do today or in the past, but if you can, you know, if you can have that perspective from a portfolio perspective within your organization, you know, redeploy people who were doing X into Y. That's how we think in 10 years time, uh, net employment levels will be actually higher than they are now. Uh, that's the part of the story that a lot of people are missing, we think at the moment. Uh, ben, uh, one example, and I'm, I want to get your reaction to this, that I recently uh, was shown. It was a demonstration of software whereby a camera was put into an industrial kitchen. And the goal was to make sure that everybody in this industrial kitchen was wearing the appropriate coveralls, uh, gloves, and hats. And the point being that it's a very difficult thing to keep track of on a regular basis, but the camera was loaded with software that would zoom in on each of the members of the uh, the culinary team, and it would make sure it would uh, track whether they were wearing the right hats, whether they had the right gloves on, and so on. And that at the end of the day, this could be reviewed, or it could even be automated to the point where if they didn't follow these specific rules, that would be noted. Is that an example of the kind of thing that's going to happen? Yeah, I mean, one again, one of the sort of core trends that's been going on for a long time, but it's now collided with these machine learning systems of intelligence, is the data that's being generated by IoT sensors. In that kind of context, you're basically sensor enabling the whole ex physical environment using, you know, visual, but also using other types of sensor. That's throwing off, you know, huge data more data than people can make sense of. So you need these new machines to then be able to create sort of business rules and business decisions and business results out of that. Now, of course, the, the, you know, the, the scenario you raise raises lots of uh, privacy sort of concerns. No, I, I understand like that, but, but I'm it, just talking about in terms yeah. of safety issues. I mean, for example, if you have someone handling any kind of hazardous material, you know, there are certain protocols that you would have to follow. And I'm wondering, what are the businesses, who are the companies that you know of that are able to exploit this from a technological point of view? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people are talking about the three Ds, dull, dirty, and dangerous work being replaced by this type of automation software. And, and we certainly buy into that. I mean, the mining industry, 
industry is one where where this is pretty advanced now. The big um, uh, big mines in Australia, around um, in South Africa, they're using this kind of technology already uh, from an automation perspective, both in the vehicles and in the safety context as well. So that's you know it's a it's a great example. Ben, you were saying that the net jobs could potentially even increase. Mm due to the adoption of artificial intelligence. But one very big concern is that the people who are going to get the jobs will be uh, people with uh, higher levels of education, that this will only widen the divide between uh, the wealthier and more educated versus the poor and less educated, basically, uh, as people who do the triple D jobs are unable to find those jobs anymore. Well, again, it's a great question. It's a central theme within the book that we try to discuss. And again, we think that people need to take personal agency to recognize, you know, what's going on and to, uh, to you know, figure out that they need to sort of upskill themselves, retrain themselves, um, be able to learn to use these new tools. Under, understood. I, I guess that there's, there's a big concern, though, that there are entire swaths, entire communities of people who have kind of been left behind. That's where a lot of the anger has been uh, driven. And how do uh, those communities... Uh, you know, find the tools and the the requirements. I mean, this is sort of a, a big sort of tension right now. Yeah, this now. is a big policy issue. This is, uh, you know, this is a, um, a governmental issue. This is a local um, uh, political issue. It's a societal issue. Um, uh, at, the, at the root of it, the, the only solution to it fundamentally is is in training, is in STEM-based education and and STEM-based education that people from an arts background or from a you know a non-technical background can use those tools to be relevant in the future. Um, I mean, our book is about wealth creation rather than wealth distribution. That that that's a broader issue in a way. It's a very real issue. And obviously, um, you know, the, the future of work is being dominated by Mr. Trump and Mr. Robot. They're the two kind of central characters in this story at the moment. Just, just quickly, if, uh, if I had the time, where would you send me physically to go and see this kind of future in action right now well on the robotic side i mean look at the just look at the the kiva videos the amazon warehouse videos i mean if that doesn't blow your mind i don't know what will on a more sort of tactical very sort of point solution there's a great company here in new york called x.ai check them out they have software that automates meeting scheduling i don't know whether you guys have heard of that i mean you think about how, how much time people spend scheduling meetings uh time is money you can yeah. automate that all the way that's an, a great little example Thank you so much for joining us. Ben Pring of Cognizant, uh, an IT futurist and co-leader of the Future Work of Work Center, uh, also the co-author of a new book, What to Do When Machines Do Everything. All right, uh, President Donald Trump uh, is said to be angered by learning that a change to certain tax breaks for people in high-tax states would hurt middle-class income taxpayers. And here to tell us more is Kevin Cirilli, covers the president and the White House and all things politics, so joining us from Washington, D.C. And, of course, you can follow Kevin on Twitter at Kev Cirilli. All right, Kev Cirilli, what's up with the—I thought, did the president not know previously that this would be a, a, you know an obstacle for people— in the middle class who take those deductions? Hey, Tim. So I, I spoke with some sources yesterday who told me that the president was frustrated when reports came out regarding these state and local deductions 
that, of course, uh, tax, that salt, as it's commonly called, inside the Beltway. Now, supporters of it are saying that it would be a source of $1.3 trillion in revenue, a huge chunk of the $6 trillion that the tax plan will cost. But I have to be really honest here. Many Republicans on Capitol Hill are divided on this. And the president was frustrated when he realized that some reports suggest that taxes would actually be raised on the middle class should this plan go through. We're told that the president is making tweaks to this plan sometimes over the next couple of weeks that he'll announce at a later date. Uh, Kevin, I want to bring to you some headlines. Uh, Gary Cohn, the chief economic advisor to President Trump, uh, just told reporters that President Trump is not reconsidering state his state and local tax position. Um, and he uh, said this to reporters. I find this compelling. It's sort of this push and pull that we're getting, uh, which is that perhaps there will be some kind of rewrite around this to, uh, among other things, shore up support among New York Dem- uh, Republicans. Republicans, right, uh, and also to alleviate any burden to middle class voters. This seems to suggest maybe not. What's your take on this? Well, the votes right now, there's a huge, large contingency of folks in the House of Representatives being led by Representative Peter King, who are really um, against uh, this. And so any type of tweaks that are going to be made uh, would have to be made in order to win some of their support, because right now, Gary Cohn and I'm not really sure he's that influential on Capitol Hill. Most people expect him to be out by the end of the year uh, if he even has the president's here anymore. Um, but, you know, Gary Cohn really just hasn't been able to form a winning coalition in order to get this across the, the finish line. Um, so it'll be interesting to see whether or not he has any more influence with a lot of these conservatives up on Capitol Hill who, quite frankly, have never really spoken to Gary Cohn to begin with. Kevin, uh, is is the plan still supposed to be revenue neutral? Well, <laughs> that's another sticking point, Ben. Uh, and there are some Republicans who want it to be and others who don't. Uh, and that's really drove a lot of the separation before uh, b- behind the uh, behind the scenes, because a lot of folks are concerned about the deficit. People like Senator Bob Corker, who we all know is in, entangled in a tit-for-tat with uh, – with folks earlier today, or I'm sorry, with the president earlier this week. So right now, uh, if you are a betting kind of guy, uh, what's your expectation that there'll be some formal bill uh, that will at least be presented uh, in Congress within the next few weeks? Well, the tax rating committees are hard at work on this. I think the dynamic between conservatives and the Freedom Caucus, as well as other conservatives in the Senate, their relationship with the big six, as they're known as, that's really where all of the, the, the framework is being hammered out. Um, and there's a lot of tension there. I mean, we've chronicled this these ideological conservative fights over several years now, and they're still alive and well. We just saw it exist on health care. I think we're going to watch it again unfold with tax reform. Is there been any more detail offered than those nine pages? Okay. No, there's literally been no details, and that's really what's been frustrating for a lot of uh, folks on Capitol Hill is that typically tax reform is something that is talked about ad nauseum. And so the idea that this would not uh, be discussed has really made a lot of people frustrated because right now they're just being asked to come out against, you know, tax lowering tax cuts, essentially, which no Republican will come out and say that they're against. But in terms of how to achieve those goals, the details just simply aren't there, um, no matter what Gary Cohn seemingly wants to suggest. 
Well, Kevin, <laughs> no you know, offense to Gary Cohn. Well, he's, he, he, he just called in and said he wasn't offended. Uh, I, I do want to just wonder, though, is there anyone talking about infrastructure spending at this point? Because we also no heard one. a lot about that. And there is nothing that I can see uh, that points to anything on that real quick. No, nothing, nothing. No new developments on infrastructure. Really, the strategy of the conversation on Capitol Hill is tax reform um, and foreign policy. Uh, but, yeah, there has virtually been silent on the infrastructure front. Kevin Sirley, thank you so much for joining us. And thank I'm you. Sure we'll be hearing more from you uh, as this whole uh, tax reform plan goes forward. Kevin Sirley is a White House correspondent for Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.